Well, thank you once again. Thank you for holding through this day together. And uh, I just want to take one further aspect. Obviously, we could spend uh, many sessions talking about the grace of God from many different perspectives. But I'm going to speak to you about serving God. Sometimes we see our service as a way of pleasing God. And I want to look at uh, God's answer to that. Okay, so I'm looking in Hebrews and chapter 9, just a few verses here. Hebrews chapter 9, and reading from verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who've been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Father, we once again invite the help, the inspiration, the energy of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for that power to rest upon us, that, that spirit of revelation, that insight, that, Lord, seeing things perhaps like we've not seen them before, with, Lord, a communication of excitement and faith and stimulus, Lord. You know our need of being stimulated by your truth. And we, we ask for that, Father. We pray that the Holy Spirit come upon us. Let your power rest upon us, we pray. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you travel around the UK, you'll see lots of buildings that uh, used to be churches. Uh, you see them, sometimes the architecture betrays this used to be a church, and uh, maybe now it's a museum or a small library, uh, a warehouse, even a mosque. Uh, you see these buildings, and uh, they used to be churches. They used to be alive, and uh, now, sadly, they're closed. And I'm sure that doesn't happen overnight. I'm sure that churches that used to be alive don't some one week suddenly find they're not. And so I think it's important for us to consider how, how did that come about, how do things die down. And uh, I know we used to have a little tree in our garden and it caught some sort of disease and you could watch it dying from the tips kind of thing. Just the death kept crept up through until it all withered away. And you thought, oh, that was sad. And, and death can kind of creep in. And the verse I just finished reading with you, it says how we should have our conscience cleansed from dead works, from things of death, things that creep in. It says in Hebrews 6, repent from dead works, religious activity. And I think some of us would think maybe as evangelical believers, you know, we're not really into uh, religious outward stuff. You know, that's kind of a more formal kind of church life. That, that's not the kind of church we're into. We, 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 we mean business. We're in life, vitality. We're not, in, we're not into externalism. But I'd like us to be a bit more self-critical and think, now, where can, where can we be involved in things that are not surging with life? And uh, I would say here are some of the things that are, that are dead works. It's a, a Bible phrase, really. 
I would say something that's a dead work is something that's without faith. And it's easy to drift into Christian activity that isn't mixed with faith, because faith is absolutely crucial and fundamental to our serving of the Lord. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. So it's possible to go through the routine and drift away from that sense of leaning into God, that sense of what will God do, uh, uh, perhaps having prayed before in a real spirit of faith. I mean, you know, I'm believing that we came together for this day, praying, Lord, we want you to come, we want your presence there, we want truth to bless us. We're looking to him, we're asking him. But it's possible, you know, to be in church, say, tomorrow morning, and think, well, why are we here? Well, it's Sunday morning. Where else would I be? And it's possible to be going through the motions because, well, that's what you do on a Sunday morning. And, and it's so very important that we don't let a kind of death creep in from the edge of the branches where, hey, where's that, where's that vitality we used to know? Where's that sense of God's with us? We want to see God move. And I, and I would say that a work without, without faith, and so why are we doing it? Well, we, we always do it. Uh, there was a girl in the church uh, in Brighton. One day she said to me, she said, I asked my mother, why is it when you cook the Sunday roast, why is it that you cut off the two ends of the roast and put them on the top of the piece of meat? Why do you do that? And her mother said, well, uh, to be honest, I'm not quite sure. Grandma did it. I've always done it. I guess it may be to let the juices flow. I'm, I don't know. Grandma's coming on Sunday. Ask Grandma. So grandma comes on Sunday and she says, Grandma, why? Why is it that when you put the roast in the oven, you cut the two ends off? I mean, what does that do? What does that accomplish in the meat? What's the purpose of that? And the grandmother said, you still do that? She said, yeah, yeah, but why do we do it? She said, I used to do it because the oven was so small, it was the only way I could get the meat in. And so, you know, the reason for doing it has long gone. And it's possible to be going through, you know, all sorts of things. You know, why are we doing house groups? What are we trying to accomplish at the moment? Why do we do this? Have we, have we got focused? You know, what we're doing? Well, we always have house group Wednesday night. And it's possible to, to drift from a, a, a purpose, a focus, a faith, and just to be doing it. A work that's without faith, I want to suggest to you, is actually it's a dead thing. Or a work without hope, if, even if it's not kind of cultivated faith, that we say, right, tomorrow we're believing for X people to be saved, we might at least be with hope. It's a biblical word. And uh, I remember the story, I'm sure you do, of Jonathan and his armor bearer when they went out into battle. And uh, Jonathan said, perhaps the Lord will, will step in. Perhaps. He, he took his perhaps into battle. It was like at least he was leaning forward. Who knows? God's around. Anything could happen. It was a kind of, at least as an expectation, God could intervene. At least there was, a, there was a hope. And a work that's without hope, a work without, you know, it just gradually begins to creep into death. Another, another dead work, I would think, is what I would call a presumptuous work. I think you see that in the story of, of Joshua, where, you know, he looked up at Jericho and you think, wow, how do we take Jericho? And I, I often think about him. It's, uh, you know, I imagine it says Jericho was walled up to heaven. It's like, whoa, I've never seen such a city. And it's like, uh, Moses, oh, he's gone. Uh, did you notice that manna stopped yesterday? Ooh. And the river Jordan's closed behind you. Oh, uh, you know, it's like, help, what do we do next? And, uh, and then the Lord appears and uh, faith 
rises and the instruction to go. And uh, he marches around Jericho as commanded. They shout, the walls fall. Hallelujah. And what a triumph. I love that phrase in Hebrews. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Tremendous. What happens next? He says, hmm, go and look at the next town. And they send some spies down. They look at the next town. They come back and say, oh, it's easy. I mean, if we can take Jericho, we can easily take Ai. And with, it's like in one simple step, they move from absolute dependence on God to, it's okay, we can handle this. And, and that's kind of moving into presumption. It's feeling, hmm, anyone can do this, we could do this. And what was such wonderful faith suddenly becomes, oh, it's no problem, we can handle it. Presumptuous, it's something that we can drift into without hardly noticing it. Or again, another, I would say, things that God has not commanded us to do. When I was at uh, the first church I pastored, I had, a, I had a, a communication from my former school, which was like 20 miles down the road, and I was very backslidden when I, I was saved at 16, a horrible, poor Christian. And, and they wrote to me and said, we hear you're now a minister of religion. Would you consider coming in once a week to teach on religious knowledge? Um, it was a really gracious invitation. And I thought, ah, what an exciting thing. I can kind of retrieve uh, the, the mess I was at school. I can gain ground. I can maybe put that right. And I was quite excited about, hey, I'm going to go back to my old school. I'm going to preach the gospel through the lessons. And, uh, and I'm praying about it. And, uh, and it's like one of those times when you're praying and you feel heaven isn't interested. It's like, Lord, thank you for this. And, and Lord, we're really looking forward to the school. You know, you know the school? You know, Lord, the school, the door, this open door I've got. And it's like nothing's coming back. There's no... Uh, and I felt God said to me, what did I call you to do? I said, well, pastor this church. And, yeah. But it's like, but it's such an open door. And I had to call a friend who, who lived in Brighton, and, and um, he was a Youth for Christ worker, and it always worked out. Somebody else did it. It was a door that was open, but actually I wasn't told to do it. And so it, become, it could become a dead thing for me. And if you're not careful... We can say, well, that's an open door. There's another open door, and someone should do it. And wow, we can't leave that. And we can get sucked into things that are not commanded. It's not something God's told us to do. It's really, it's not, it's like Philip Peter, after, even after the resurrection. This is ongoing fishing. Well, he caught nothing. He wasn't commissioned to do it. And I think it's important for us to say, Lord, where are you in this? So I can have faith. You see, sometimes it's possible to become so busy. Oh, well, somebody should do that. And ought, someone ought to visit her. And someone ought to do that. And you say, have you got faith for it? Well, I haven't got time for faith. I've got to get there. I must do that. And, and we're just going through open doors, as we would say. And, and suddenly, activity rather than faith is our prime motivation. It's just robbing us. It's becoming a dead thing. And then last of all, the Bible itself says so plainly in 1 Corinthians 13, if I do anything without love, it's nothing. So you can have faith to remove mountains, and it's nothing. You can give away all your money to the poor, and it's nothing. You can, have, you can speak in tongues of men and angels. It's just like goes through one after another and said, but if it's not love-motivated, it's nothing. So 
it becomes just externalism. In fact, it's interesting to compare what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 and what Paul said to the church at Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1, I know your work of faith, your labor of love, the steadfastness of your hope. Wonderful commendation. Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus, I know your work, I know your labor, I know your hope, I know your steadfastness. So the, ex- the external things, you know, the work's still happening, the labor's still happening, you're still steadfast, but it's like, well, where's the labor of love? Where's the work of faith? Where's the steadfastness of hope? Where's, where's this love, faith, hope? Where's that? Jesus says, unless you come back to the love you had at first, I'll remove your lampstand. Because the heart has gone. You're still doing the externals, but you've lost the way. So Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand. That's pretty scary. I'd hate to be the pastor of a church that Jesus has removed the lampstand from. It's hard to define, isn't it? It's like the doors didn't shut next week. It's not, hey, we can't get in the church. I guess we could get in the church. But it's possible to be in a church where lampstand's gone. It's rather like in the Old Testament when God spoke to Saul when Saul was so unrepentant as a king. And he said, today the kingdom is removed from you, said to Saul. I don't think that meant he couldn't get in the palace the next day or sit on the throne. But from God's point of view, today the kingdom's removed. And there's things that God can do when he says, I I don't want this externalism. I'm not in it. I'm withdrawing. That's very scary. So dead things, they can creep in for various reasons. And so we don't want to be just say, oh, we don't, we're not into dead religion. We can, if we're not careful, drift from something that's vibrant and get into something that's actually just external. So I want to ask the next question, why would you ever do that? Why do you just do religious things? Why do we keep doing them? Well, I think the verse kind of gives us the hint of the answer. It says, the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works. I think sometimes we, when we haven't grasped grace, which is what we're talking about today, we can get into activity that's motivated by conscience. So we do things because what would he think of me if I didn't? What would they think of me if I didn't? What would God think of me if I didn't? Because our conscience hasn't been really blessed by grace. We haven't understood what we were preaching about in the first session. I'm free, I'm righteous. So we think, oh, I better do these things in order to keep others happy, etc. I think that's what it's saying here. The blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience. We don't, we don't have to do things to impress other people. In fact, it says this in Romans 4, in verse 4, it says, to him who doesn't work, but believes in the God who justifies the ungodly. It's an amazing verse. His faith is regarded as righteousness to one who doesn't work. It's quite explicit. To the one who doesn't work, but believes in the God who justifies the ungodly through his faith, he's regarded as righteous. Now, in a sense, that's the heart of the message of grace. You don't have to work to prove that you're righteous. So again, when I was in this town, this church, we had been coming through a time of uh, 
quite remarkable change. The Holy Spirit was coming in. Uh, we were coping with that in a, a rather conservative church setting. And the Spirit was coming. More and more freedoms happening. And, and so we were very involved internally, sorting out ourselves, keeping on track. Uh, and then we kind of came through in a good place. And I felt God said, you know, you haven't had any fellowship with any other believers in town. And I, and I felt God said, I want you to acknowledge the body of Christ in the town. And I went along to the local minister's fraternal, and I said, look, we've not been before. Am I free to come? Oh, you're most welcome. So I started going to the fraternal, and I'd only been to one meeting, and there's a knock at my door, and there's a guy at the door. He said, I understand your church is going to be more involved with the other churches in town. I said, yeah, sure. We, we feel we'd like to you know, be friendly and open to the body of Christ. He said, I'm so glad. I said, oh, good. He said, because next week we're all going to give out uh, envelopes, we put them through the letterboxes of all the houses in town, and then we go back the next week and ask for their money. <laughs> and uh, he said, I'm so glad you're going to be involved. And I said, I don't think so. So I mean, I thought, that's, that's not really what I think the church is here for, you know, to ask unbelievers for their money door to door. So I said, no, I don't think we'll do that. And he said to me, I thought you said you were coming in with the churches. So I said, well, we'd like to. He said, well, we're all doing it. And then he said this. He said, even the Roman Catholics join in. <laughs> so, so what's he trying to do? He's trying to give me a bad conscience. So I said to him, no, we won't. And that was the end of it. Because it's, and it's almost like, no, we won't, and I'm righteous anyway. See, in my heart, I understood. I understood grace by then. No, the blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience. You're trying to mess it up, but you can't because the blood of Jesus had cleansed my conscience. So I'm not going to do it, and we're still righteous. Thank you very much. You see, if I hadn't been clear on that, I'd have gone to the church and said, well, we better do it, folks. You know, we're going to come, we're going to do it, because what will they think of us if we don't? And that's where people get caught. What, what will they think if I don't? And so we get pulled into things we've got no heart for, we've got no faith for, we're not sure we're meant to be doing it, but our conscience gets, it, gets us into it. Now, I want to suggest that we can get into all sorts of things like that in a local church. It's like, would you, look, would you be involved with the children's work? Horrible, beastly, smelly things. Uh, yes, of course, you know. Because, well, what would he think if I say no? But you don't feel anything towards them. You think, mm, horrible, noisy beasts. But uh, some, if, if I say no, I can't, if I say no. So you've got to get to this place where you say, no, and I'm still righteous. God bless you. And now... <laughs> Now, this is where the pastors get scared when you preach this, because they, I'm going to be doing everything soon. <laughs> Everybody's going to say, no, and I'm righteous, no, and I'm righteous. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus is my righteousness. I, I don't have to do anything, thank you. God bless you as you try and run this church, hallelujah. Uh, and I'm righteous anyway. See you in the worship tomorrow. You know? And it's like, so, so what am I saying? I'm saying this. We don't have to do anything to justify ourselves because we're righteous as a gift. Hallelujah. Now, is that where grace takes us? Yes. But grace also, to push on through the verse, we says, the blood of Jesus cleanses my heart, my, my, my conscience from dead works. The blood of Jesus cleanses me. Then it says, in order that we might serve the living God. All right? I want to now show the contrast between dead works and serving the living God. Let me just first of all establish that God does want us to serve him. All right? Let me just remind you of some famous verses. 
Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. All right? So God wants his church characterized by zeal for good works. Another one, Matthew 5.16, that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So there's a good motive for God's glory. God wants us to have visible works. Uh, John 9.14, we must work the works of him who sent me. The night is coming when no one can work. Now he's introducing a note of urgency there. We must work while there's opportunity. There come a moment and the opportunity is over. And then the last one, Revelation 22, verse 12. I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. According to what he's done. So there's four verses coming from slightly different angles which show the relevance of good works, serving the living God, serving the living God. So what are we talking about here? What's, what's, how does this unfold? It's important we understand that God does want us to serve him, but he doesn't want conscience work. The blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience. I don't have to do things to somehow make me acceptable to God. That isn't the point. That isn't my need. But God is saying here that he wants to reward our good works. In fact, if you would like to, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians 3 now. I'll just look at a few verses with you. We'll stay in this passage for a little while. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says in verse 11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it's to be revealed by fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which is built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself is saved, yet so as through fire. So here's probably one of the clearest sections on how we understand Christian work in the New Testament. It says every one of us will have our works displayed as evident. They're going to be tested with fire. He says you can build with gold or with stubble, wood, straw, precious stones. There's all these different ways of building. And ultimately, all our works will be tested by fire. Now, he says this, some will suffer loss. But he says you'll be saved. Your works will be burned up, but you're saved because obviously we're not saved by works. We are secure. We are righteous. God has declared us righteous as a gift because we're in Christ. Jesus' righteousness is given to us. What he's saying is this. He's given us his righteousness. He's made us eternally safe. We are his. We are justified freely. Having given us like a white robe, it's like he says, now, I want you to take... Somebody illustrated it this way. It's like he gave you a golden thread and said, embroider it now. I'll give you works that you can now do. It's not to do with salvation. 
But having been justified freely, he invites us to serve him. God wants us to serve him. And not only to serve him, he wants to reward us for what we do. That's what it's saying here. He wants to reward us for those, those works that we do. And we will ultimately be tested. You've got an example of it where Jesus is in the, in the temple. It says Jesus was in the temple. He sat down opposite the money box. And he saw the rich guy come in. And the rich guy's kind of looking around and putting his big gift in. <laughs> you know, I'm just generous, can't help myself. And, and, and then you see the little woman comes in and she's hoping no one's looking. And she just puts two coins in. It's like Jesus gives us an example of what's going to happen to us all one day. The example of the, let the fire fall on those gifts. It's like the fire falls on this man's great big gift and the smoke lifts. You think, hey, where'd it go? It's gone. It went up in smoke. It disappeared. And then you think, well, where's the woman's gift? The fire falls on the woman's gift. The smoke lifts. And hey, look at this. It's precious stones. This stood the fire test. It came through. It was authentic. It was, it was genuine. Jesus loved it. And so he does test. He tests our works. He will test our works. We will all stand before God. He having tested our works. He will test us. And we stand before him to be tested. That's what it says in the word. Now, we need to see what Paul says about that. 1 Corinthians 4, the next chapter, he says this. Talking about other people uh, judging him, he says in chapter 4, verse 3, to me it's a very small thing that I'm examined by you or by any human court. I don't even examine myself. But I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I'm not by that acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord. Now verse 5 is the big verse. Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. All right, so our works are going to be tested by fire. He says, I'm not really, I don't really care what you think of me. I'm not interested in what you think of me. But what I am aware of is I will stand before God one day. One day, I'll give account to God. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. And he said, when that happens, God will bring out the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then everyone gets their praise from God. So it's like, Terry, why did you go to Lowestoft? in July 2014. You can't see my heart. I can't see my heart. Terry, why are you going off to America next week? Do you like airplanes? Do you like international travel? Do you like standing on planes? God, there's going to come a day when I will stand before God and God will bring to light the things hidden in darkness which you can't see and I can't see and disclose the motives of my heart. Then, then, we get our praise from God. So, beloved, we, we don't tend to take it that seriously. We say, oh, I'll do it. Yeah, someone's got to do it. Oh, it's dreadful. I don't and why, what are we doing? God's going to disclose the motives of our hearts. Because God is worthy of service that is appropriate to the king and comes from love and worship and praise and thanksgiving and with the awareness that God does take See, I tried to show the first half of my sermon, we don't have to do this stuff to justify ourselves because grace makes us accepted. 
But then when we do works, he will test our works to see what kind of quality they were. That's why I say you need to get a book. There's a whole thing about grace, not little nips of it. The whole package to see what is he saying. He's saying he wants to test our works. Now, it's possible that we don't even think about works. Sometimes you think, when did you last hear a sermon about works? I think sometimes it's because we've got this, a message of grace which says that's all there is to it. You're righteous, end of the story. Hallelujah, let's drift on through life then. That's not the whole story. Sometimes it's because of other things. Sometimes it's, it's because we, if I can say it this way, it's like we've got fragments of ideas which when you put them together makes it sound like it doesn't matter. What do I mean? Here's some examples. You might say to the, the drummer, the keyboard player, whoever played in the, in the music, you know, you, play, you say to the keyboard player, that was beautiful, thank you for that. What do they say? They say often something like this, oh, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. Have you heard that? It wasn't me, it was the Lord. You feel like saying, who played the bad note? No, 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 <laughs> there were no bad notes. Right? Or when it wasn't me, it was the Lord, you feel like saying, well, it was good, but the Lord, I mean, <laughs> not sure it was that good. Was that... What, what, what they say, it's like, I don't, please don't applaud me. Now, it's often said from a good motive, but there's a danger in which you're saying, it wasn't me. No, it was you. Thanks for the way the band played together. Thanks for the hard work. Thanks for learning to play an instrument. Thanks for meeting together so that you've got arrangements. Thanks for the way you've... Thanks so much. What do you mean it wasn't you? It was you. Thank you. We appreciate it. And sometimes we don't know what to do with that because, well, it wasn't me. And behind that is a kind of theology that says it doesn't matter. It wasn't me anyway. It was God. Now, we've got to tear that apart a bit. And sometimes, I, I, when I used to preach years ago, first time I went around some more formal churches, and, and you go into the deacon's room before you preach, and they would pray a prayer over you. And one of my friends said to me, if they ever do that again, because I hear it so often, and they would pray this prayer, oh, Lord, hide the preacher this morning. We would see only Jesus. I mean, it sounds lovely, doesn't it? And he, he said, if they do that again, he said, I'm going to go into the pulpit and say, let us pray. And when they close their eyes, I'm going down underneath. <laughs> he said, let's see how they get on without me. He said, I, we don't want to see the preacher. And some of those wonderful old pulpits have it worked into the wood. It says, sir, we would see Jesus. Now, the motivation behind that is wonderful. The danger is, like, you know, channels only, blessed master. We're nothing. We're just a channel. We don't, we don't exist. And you put that together with, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. We don't want to see you. We just want to see Jesus. And then the more modern one is the, I've heard from people I really honor, to be honest, but I've heard this. They say this, God is looking for a faceless army. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I've heard that several times. God is looking for a faceless army. <laughs> what does that mean? What does it mean? Because people say, yeah. What does it mean? It means God doesn't like your identity. Your identity doesn't matter. He just wants faceless people. You see, it sounds noble, but it's wrong. It's wrong. It's like faceless. What does that mean? It means you don't matter. You're not important. And it means it doesn't matter ultimately because you're faceless. It wasn't you. It was the Lord. And you put that all together. See, that's not biblical. You look at David's army, they are not faceless. Their names are there. Their exploits are there. God is not threatened by their personality. God is not threatened by their triumphs. God celebrates them. 
He doesn't say, no, you're faceless. You're just number 73. You know, the people building the wall around Nehemiah's rebuilt city. It doesn't say, oh, some people did it. Names, 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 names. And he worked hard and they didn't. Oh, does that matter? Yes. Yes, matters. Matters. So if you get a doctrine, see, even Ignatius of Loyola, you may or may not be familiar with that name, he was the founder of the Jesuit movement, and he gave the church this famous prayer. He said this, we do all these things not looking for any reward, save that of knowing we do your will. Now that sounds wonderful, and it may be it was wonderful from his heart, but it's wrong. We do these things not looking for any reward. What does that mean? It tends to mean we don't take rewards very seriously. The last, one of the last things in the Bible is Jesus, in the book of Revelation, one of the last things, it says, I am coming, my reward is with me, to give to every man according to what he's done. Jesus is coming with his rewards. Now, which of us, I'm not volunteering, which of us is going to say, oh, Jesus, 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 have a seat. Uh, we want to speak to you about this. I mean, looking for rewards. We really feel Ignatius has taken us further. I mean, we don't feel it's a very good motivation, Lord. You know, Lord, just listen to us. We'll put you right. Hey, who's going to volunteer? Who, if, if it's between Jesus and Ignatius, who do you think got it wrong? Jesus said, I'm coming with my rewards. But we've got a theology that says, doesn't matter. It wasn't you, it was the Lord. Faceless army, we don't matter. We don't care. It doesn't matter. The Bible says it does matter. The Bible says we shall all appear before him. We shall stand before him. Now, we will be justified freely. We're secure. We're righteous. We're accepted. We're delighted in. You can hope you can get the balance of this with me. We're righteous through grace. Then he invites us to serve him. And then he wants to reward us for our service. So I want to encourage you not to see grace as a good reason to turn off. And I want to see grace also as a good reason for not doing stuff that you don't want to do. That you've got no heart for doing, that you've got no faith for it, because it's going up in smoke. You know, it's like, oh, so-and-so's in hospital. Oh, yeah. Have you been to see her? No, she'll be out next week. I'd better go and see her. Why? You know, why am I going to see her? Maybe God, maybe God will say to you, the reason you're going to see her is she'll be out next week and she'll say, why didn't you come and see me? You're more conscious of you. You're more conscious of what she think of me. I'm supposed to be a small group leader or whatever. I'm supposed to be a friend. You know? And so what are you really thinking? You may ask God, say, Lord, do you want me to go and see her? It may be God say, listen, you've got this to do, this to do, the children to collect. I've given you what you're to do. Don't. I'm not calling you to do that as well. That's a dead work for you. Or it may be he'll say to you, she's never been in hospital before. She's terrified of the surgery. I want to express my love to her. And actually you were going for your own reputation's sake. And then we need to stand back and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I got busy. I, I forgot her need. I really was thinking, what will she think of me? It's a conscience work. And when you say, Lord, I'm sorry about it, I, I just ask your forgiveness. And it may well be then God says, no, I want you. No, this is what I want you to do. Go, bring my love to her. And I feel, you know, the, the nurse looking on just sees somebody go in and out. It doesn't make a difference to her. 
the person sitting in the hospital thinks they can feel this kind of, um, you know, we've got to go soon, and there's time, oh, nice to see you. And, you know, you eat their grapes as well, you know. It's, <laughs> or, or you come in and, and you leave the love of God. Because you really felt, no, God commissioned me to do this. I feel, I feel this is what God would have me do. So I'm trying to get underneath the skin of dead works and say, why do we do this? If we're doing it with faith and love, God owns it. God's in it. And what God wants are people zealous for those kind of dead works, those kind of works that are doing for his glory. And so grace sets me free from doing stuff that is just legalism, conscience work. I don't need to do it. Hallelujah. Now I want to serve him. And I, and I want to keep my motives good because it's the motives of men's hearts that are going to be tested in the end. It's not just the fact you did it. The guy gave all his money. He's gone up in smoke. God, God wants to know why you're doing it, what we're doing. So let me finish with this section, all right? What is it to serve the living God? What is it to serve? It's a difference between the dead work and serving the living God. Serving the living God, God is working with us. All right, that's the first thing. God, the Lord, working with them, it says in Mark 16. 2 Corinthians 6 1, working together with God. Galatians 2 8, he who effectually worked through Peter to the Jews, effectually worked through Paul to the Gentiles. It's like when you're doing what you're meant to be doing, God's there. God's energies. You're doing it with God. This is the excitement of being a spirit-filled church. We feel God's help in the things we're called to do. We find that God's giving us tasks and roles to fulfill. We find he is working with us. We also find that we are doing his will. See, dead works don't get his will done. He says, we're just going through. It's like, why did you cut the, the ends off the meat? Oh, I don't know. There's no point in it anymore. And we can do things without the sense of this is his will. There's nothing like a gray, a gray kind of church where no one is consciously doing his will. You get this story of David. It says, God said, I have found David, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. That's exciting, eh? I found a man. It's almost like God's dancing around heaven. I found one to do my will. And then at the end of his life, it says, David fell asleep having fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation. What a testimony. What a testimony. He fell asleep having fulfilled the purpose of God. He wasn't just doing religion. He was doing the will of God. Living works get the will of God done. He did the will of God. He did what God wanted him to do. You say, well, how, how do I do that? I love what Jesus prayed in John 17. He said, I have finished the work you gave me to do. And he says this, I have glorified you on the earth. I have done the work you gave me to do. So he said, I wish I could be Billy Graham. <laughs> you know, I wish I, I wish I could be Catherine Kuhlman. I wish I could be, if only I could be. Now, how did Jesus glorify God on the earth? He did the work he gave him to do. You think what the work God gave Susanna Wesley she raised up John Wesley, raised up Charles Wesley. You know, incredible. The work, what has God called me to do? And so living works get the will of God done. They, we find ourselves doing what God has given us to do. We find we are doing what he wants. It says that in John 4, 
that they came to Jesus when he's at the well talking to the woman, and they've gone to buy food, and they say to Jesus, have you had anything to eat? He said, I have food to eat you know nothing about. This is my meat, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's my meat. That's what keeps me ticking. I'm doing what he called me to do. <laughs> and that word finished, accomplished, it's three times in, in the Gospels. And the last one is where Jesus is on the cross. And he's saying, it is accomplished. I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. It's not, I don't think it's finished. It's no, 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 I've done it. I've accomplished it. This is my meat. This is what I'm on the planet for. I've glorified you on the earth. I've done what you gave me to do. And beloved, that's what God wants for us. He doesn't want us doing stuff that we're not called to do. Now, when you're in a new church plant, to be very practical, it's all hands on deck. Let's just, you know, get on with it quickly. Everybody's going to do everything. As a church grows into a maturity, and it's together that we find what we're meant to do. We're meant to be corporate, not individualistic. We're called to relational mission. And in relational mission, you find what your role is. You know, I don't say to my hand, hand, chop. Go and wait on God, see what the will of God for your life is. Hand serves the body, does up buttons, does scratching. You know, it's got, oh, the hand's quite good at things. We've got umpteen grandchildren, Wendy and me, and you see these lovely babies, and you see them lying down, you see when they first see their hand. You've seen that, it's so funny. You go, oh. They haven't got a clue what it's there for. Uh, they think toes are for sucking, knees are for walking on. But a mature body begins to... I mean, you look at athletes, you think, wow, that's a mature body. And, and you can see churches where there's a matureness, a maturity coming through, where people are in their roles, doing the things they're gifted to do. And where there's a good discipling factor, people are saying, hey, when you do that, we're hugely blessed. Well, we may have to say sometimes, when you do that, you mess up the meeting. We've got to help one another through to find who we are in God. But if we will find our way through, we'll find there are works that really express the will of God. And we're serving the living God. We're not just doing religion. And grace sets us free to do that. Grace gives us freedom to say, no, I'm not going to do that. But desire to glorify him, that gets us doing the things he wants us to do. Living works express his variety as well. It says in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God scatters gifts amongst the people. We are stewards of the gifts he gives us. And those gifts, I think, I think of people with the gift of hospitality, I'm amazed at what they do. I'm amazed at some of the ladies in the church who think, how do you, oh, there's all those people in your home, how do you do that? And they just seem to do it. You think, man, these gifts, gifts of administration, all sorts of gifts that I know I don't have. Breathtaking gifts. You think, wow, I remember when they did the first Bible week. I thought, wow, a Bible week. How do you do a Bible week? And I remember Nigel Ring rubbing his hands together. This sounds fun. I thought, fun, it's terrible. But he's gifted, gift, amazing gift of administration. By the time we finished Stonely, there were a thousand job units. A thousand job units. Amazing. I mean, I think, how do you do that? I have no clue how you put, give a thousand people jobs to do. But hmm, yeah, it's a gift that people have got all sorts of different gifts. 
and we want people to excel in their gifts, we're doing the things God made us to do so that we are fulfilling God's purpose, not with conscience work. It's a waste of time. We're not doing it to impress somebody else. It's just going to go up in smoke. We're doing it because, yeah, I believe this is what God's put on my heart. I feel this is the way I'm meant to serve him. I find that he works with me and through me when I'm doing it. I feel him fellowshipping with me in it. I feel I'm, I'm having fellowship with him in the doing of it. And, and you, find in, you find in the Bible there are two souls. There's the soul of the Old Testament. And one of the last things he says is, I have played the fool. The old King James says this, I've played the fool, I have erred exceedingly. That's his testimony at the end of his life. It's a bit like Richard II in Shakespeare when, when he says, I have wasted time, now doth time waste me. It's like, oh, that was my life. Then you get the, the soul of the New Testament. He says, I have run the race. I have fought the fight. Henceforth, there's laid up for me. What, you're thinking about it? Yep. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown. You mean you're thinking about the reward? Yes, Paul is thinking about the reward. He suffered many things. In, it says in Hebrews, they, they left this, why? Looking for the reward. It's a biblical phrase, looking for the reward. And so, beloved, don't let grace be a big turnoff because, hey, we're so happy with grace. That's all there is to say. Now, grace sets me free. It's so wonderful. It sets me free. It also qualifies me to have rewards, ultimately. It gives me significance. It means you're not number 73, sit over there, who cares about you? It means you've got a name and an identity and a special gift. And you're made precious in God's sight. And you have value in the body of Christ. Grace doesn't cut off the nerve of service. It qualifies you for serving the living God. It sets us free from dead religion. We don't need it but we do want to serve him. We do want to fulfill our God-given purpose. We do want to glorify him. We do want, on that day when he makes our hearts open and bare, to be able to stand the gaze of his burning and to hear him say, well done, well done. We can be very sentimental, even at funerals, when they say, oh, everyone will say, oh, well done. You think, mm, God knows. God knows. The motives of our hearts are going to be shown. And we, we just need to live in the light of that so that grace sets us free to serve with joy and delight and bringing him great glory. Even Jesus, it says this, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Even he is looking for his reward. It wasn't like non-retaliation. It wasn't like Gandhi. You know, it's not like non-retaliation. No, it wasn't. He was laying down his life for the reward. God's saying, come with us. Come into my purposes. Come fulfill the destiny I give you. Grace will set you free. Grace will give you grounds for serving with joy and fulfillment. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to pray. We've finished our studies. Again, let me just encourage you. The book will open up other passages as well. But let's stand to pray. Jesus, we love you so much. We're so grateful for all our guilt being removed. We're so grateful for the righteousness you give us. Thank you that we've died to the law. We thank you, Lord. 
we are free. We thank you we're no longer in Adam. We thank you we're in Christ. We thank you we're no longer married to the law. We're married to Jesus. We thank you we're no longer slaves of sin. We're slaves of righteousness. Lord, we're so grateful, Lord. You've done incredible things in transforming our lives, setting us free to serve you, giving us a reason to live. Father, thank you so much. We worship you. We magnify you. And Holy Spirit, we do invite you. Keep on leading us into your grace more and more. We thank you, Paul said, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. We thank you, Lord, that grace kept on energizing, releasing, creating, inspiring. Lord, I pray for every person who's set aside this day here today to hear your word. Thank you for the motives you put in our hearts. Thank you. We want to learn of you. We want to be in your house. We're, Lord, you've done it. We're so grateful, Lord. Lord, left to ourselves, Lord, we don't know where we'd be. Lord, we thank you. As we've been singing earlier, Lord, without your cross, where would we be? We thank you. We're here in your house, in your family. And Lord, you're in our hearts. We're deeply grateful. And Lord, I just pray, let your word do us lasting good today. Please let it stay with us. Let it bear much fruit for your great praise and glory. Thank you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.